Hello and welcome to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchand. Having a patient die by suicide can be traumatic for any doctor and can arouse feelings of guilt, blame and in some cases can cause PTSD. There is still relatively little open discourse around the subject, which is why the college has sought to address this with the Psychiatric Support Services, the PSS helpline, to offer support and guidance to those who need it. I spoke to Dr. Ros Ramsey and Dr. Rachel Gibbons regarding the kinds of support that are available to psychiatrists, their personal stories and the philosophical questions that suicide provokes. Dr. Rosalind Ramsey is a consultant psychiatrist and Deputy Medical Director for the Medical Workforce and Quality Improvement in the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Our other speaker, Dr. Rachel Gibbons, has been working in the NHS for 20 years in various psychiatric settings and is the chair of the new RC Psych Working Group on the Effect of Suicide and Homicide on Psychiatrists and the Patient Safety Group. I mean, I think that suicide itself is quite a rare event. It's about, the rate in England is about 10 or 11 per 100,000 of the population, a bit more in Scotland, with men three times more than women. So this is quite a rare, you know, and I think that's important to emphasise that it is a, a rare event. However, it's the leading cause of death for those between 20 and 34. So with about 20% of the deaths of those between 20 and 34 are deaths by suicide. So even though it's a rare event, actually it's rare for someone not to have been touched by it in either their family or their or their um, social network or their extended network. And sometimes when I talk about this, I'll ask people to show, have, for a show of hands, for those that have been touched by suicide. And uh, sort of in general, and nearly always actually, there's at least two thirds or three quarters of the group that will put their hands up. Mm. So it's quite a... Um, and it is devastating. So one death by suicide is devastating, not just for the family and friends in this generation, but across different generations. So it's a, a very, very important area. Like a ripple effect. Yes. And I don't even quite understand the effect. But what we know is, is this, if you have in your parents or grandparents um, a death by suicide, then it increases your risk in subsequent generations. So it's, a, so it's a very important for us to think about. I think the question about taboo is actually quite a complicated one. I was thinking about the meaning of taboo, that taboo is sort of prohibited or restricted societally. And I think it's almost a philosophical question about why it's taboo. Um, and Camus, the philosopher, has written a lot, uh, wrote a lot about suicide in the myth of Sisyphus. And he, you know, I think it's worth just... Um, perhaps quoting him from that, mm. uh, he said that there is only uh, truly one serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. In a sense, killing yourself amounts to confessing. It's confessing that life is too much for you or that you don't understand it. And he went on to say that dying voluntarily implies you have recognised, even instinctively, the absence of any profound reason for living, the insane character of that daily agitation and the uselessness of suffering. So I think there he's speaking to something about the human condition, that suicide isn't something that's located in, in, uh, in others. It's the, the, there's something about suicide that is located in us as human beings. Mm-hmm. 
And I think there's something when someone dies by suicide, it puts us all in touch with something we don't want to know about, mm. something to do with life and existence. So we try to keep it out of our awareness and a sort of taboo is a great way of doing that. Um, just adding to that, perhaps there's also something about for us as doctors where we're so much thinking about um, uh, helping people to recover and to get over whatever the illness might be. Um, it kind of, it's just going in the opposite direction and perhaps that makes it extra hard in a way um, for when, when you think about what our, our kind of brief is as a doctor. Yes, yeah. no, I, I was just th thinking from that, Roz, that I think we there's something about suicide which is about shame, shame, guilt and blame. And I think from what you were just saying there, I think there's, there's something that can make us very ashamed that somehow we're not a good enough doctor if 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 a death by suicide of of a patient happens how we should prevent this um that really leads me on to the next question which is a patient dying by suicide something that could happen to any psychiatrist or any mental health professional mm. well ab absolutely yes and um i think that's that's part of the the, the this issue is that um any any mental health professional can be working with somebody who who takes their life but it's also you know it's also worth remembering that many people who take their lives by suicide are not in contact with um mental health services at all so we only actually have contact with a relatively small proportion of people who do um take their lives in mental health, I think there is a there's a sort of distortion in that we can think that we are the area where suicide is located. And like Roz says, the majority of deaths by suicide occur in the population that, that haven't had any recent mental health history. And some of the research we've done and looking at um, those that have died, some take their lives who have not had any, who, can, who you cannot see have had any mental health problems at all, mm. which leaves us with quite a, a difficulty in trying to uh, sort of think about suicide, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because there's no way to intervene. No. But also I think about where suicide actually really comes from. I mean, there's quite, if I just, um, a, a, a type of suicide, if you like, is that type of suicide that appears to be almost spontaneous or impulsive. Mm. So, for example, after the financial crashes, um, there were many people who died by suicide in the aftermath of that, often quite suddenly. So they might receive an email that something had happened financially very negatively for them, their business had collapsed. And they would, uh, I mean, sort of typically, rather stereotypically, a banker who might get an email um, that, the, that they were made unemployed or redundant and they would go up to the top of the building and jump off. Mm -hmm. Something about suicide which really defies our capacity to understand really the motivation for it or where it comes from. Yeah. Because there's also, it, it, there's also, as you were saying, that kind of philosophical kind of question, the ex existential question about what our lives are about and uh, where where people are coming from and how people think about things, which is just very, very difficult to think about in this way. Just going back a bit to what we could expect as a psychiatrist, I think, or um, is it something that we can expect to happen? Absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's part of being a psychiatrist. Mm. 
um, having a mental health problem does increase your risk of death by suicide. And um, in the survey we did with the Centre for Suicide Research in Oxford, um, we asked psychiatrists to uh, let us know a bit about their experiences. And it appeared as though in, in the lifetime of a psychiatrist, you can expect to have around four deaths by suicide that affect you um, emotionally substantially. That, that would be a sort of average. But this will vary depending on where you work. So if you work in crisis teams, for example, you're likely to have much more sort of frontline experience of this type of death. Um, and if you work in children and adolescent services, you, it, there'll be less frequency, but very devastating when they do occur. Yeah, of course. Could you describe what the aftermath of suicide might feel like for the psychiatrist who's been tending to that patient? Uh, so, um, for the past 12 years, I've been running um, a group for psychiatrists who've had the death of a patient by suicide. And what you can see is a very stereotyped pattern of response. So in this group, um, it was set up initially to help help myself and some colleagues process our own experiences. But it's been running now on a monthly basis, roughly over 12 years. And we've heard about 80 to 100 cases presented. So psychiatrists will come and talk through after they've had a death uh, and we'll do some working through together. There's a very stereotyped pattern of response, which is... Um, initially very shocked and if you tell a member of your team about a patient of theirs that's died in that moment where they hear that news they are very very shocked mm. um, and they they will say that they really didn't expect this and that's sort of borne out by a lot of the other evidence is that suicide tends to be a total shock for people even if someone is chronically expressing suicidal thoughts people don't expect them to die at the point that they die so suicide is very shocking and surprising but in a very short space of time, so even within 20 minutes, if you tell someone a patient of theirs has died by suicide, they'll be very shocked. But within about 20 minutes to half an hour, they start constructing a narrative about what happened. So they forget, if you like, that they were shocked and they start creating a narrative where they sort of knew it was going to happen or they could have seen it and they missed something. And they, um, and they tend to write themselves in as a main protagonist in this narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think this is partly because suicide leaves us in a state of absolute abject uncertainty that isn't going to be resolved we're not going to find out why this has happened we can't because the person who could tell us why has gone so we're in total uncertainty there's this narrative constructed um, with the clinician as the the main the main player and they become obsessed with having made a mistake or being to blame so that this isn't in all deaths in this way but with some um, and they can become very uh, very troubled by shame, guilt, humiliation. They can retreat, not talk to their colleagues, feel feel um, very upset, traumatised themselves. And this is a very important transitional point because if they have some space to talk through what's happened um, and process it, it allows for them to come out the other side of this and, and get a more realistic picture of what's happened. And the coroner's court can help with this sometimes because you can go to the coroner's court thinking, oh, it's me, it was all my fault. And then you hear there's a very different, you know, at the coroner's court, you hear evidence from many different people about what's happened for the coroner. And you can hear that it's a totally different uh, picture than you thought. Even in some cases, you can think it's suicide and go to the coroner's court and find out that actually it wasn't a death by suicide at all. Okay, do you think lots of people who are 
uh, affected by suicide construct a narrative for the person who um, died by suicide? Yes, yes, I think absolutely. I think it's a human thing to do. We can't bear the uncertainty. We create a narrative. And a father whose son died by suicide said that this is a way of also preserving the memory of the person that's died um, for the period of time where, you know, it's a very difficult uh, death to mourn. And there's a need to sort of preserve um, in your mind the person that's died until you're able to more realistically um, address their memory and what they've actually, how their life has actually ended. Yeah, of course. Um, Roz, could we hear from you on um, describing the aftermath of what suicide might feel like? Mm. I think it is very much as as Rachel um, has been describing. And I guess where I kind of come in here is thinking about um, in the college, in the Royal College of Psychiatrists, we have the Psychiatrist Support Service. And um, this was set up um, following um, the, the death by suicide of a psychiatric trainee um, many years ago now. She took her own life and, and the life of her, her baby as well. So that led to lots of reflection and, and thinking about what can we do to try and prevent that kind of, um, that, that kind of thing happening because it, it was such a tragedy. Um, and um, so anyhow, one, one of the things that happened out, out of that was the Psychiatrist Support Service was set up. So that service, which I'm involved in, um, gives an opportunity. It provides a safe space, a confidential space for college members to come and, and talk about anything they would like to talk about outside their workplace um, and just to be able to kind of think through where they are um, consider if there are particular steps they want to take to help themselves or what might be beneficial for them. And so one of the, one of the, the, the triggers for people approaching the, the psychiatrist support service is when a psychiatrist has had one of their patients take their life. Um, and that's, we've seen this, um, uh, it, it's a definite theme uh, that people will 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 come to the service about, and so I think what we see uh, and what I've seen in the psychiatrist support service is it's maybe not the immediate stage because um, people may not be at that point, but it's quite often some time further on where there's been this death, and then it's what's happened after that. And um, the kind of the, the, the subsequent events and coping with um, if there's an internal investigation, um, going to the coroner's court, and 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 so on, and the kind of the impact on on themselves professionally and how they look at their work, um, and on on the wider system that they're in, um, and it's it's really striking how um, uh, psychiatrists feel. Um, can feel really very affected by losing a patient to suicide. What we found is how a psychiatrist recovers from this depends very much on how this sort of the processes that follow are conducted. So if they experience the processes such as the investigation, the coroner's court, 
the support they get from their organization is compassionate and understanding it's very reparative for them but if they experience it and unfortunately it is the case in 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 some environments is it being blaming which is i think probably worth us talking about at some point it makes it much harder for them to recover um so i think that's very important to say and i think it's important for us to think about taking forward so in the aftermath of patient suicide do you think psychiatrists tend to feel blamed by other people or perhaps they blame themselves I think this is a really I don't think there could be a larger issue than this in a way um I think the aftermath of any very serious loss event it, part of your emotional response to it is blame blame of yourself and blame of other people and suicide is a very profound sudden loss event and you're thrust into this state of very high anxiety where you where you can't mentalize um you can't really think about what's happening. And that's a world of a sort of very primitive world of blame. Um, and the thing with blame is it's only a one player game, really. Only one person or one thing can be to blame for something. And it doesn't make any sense where it comes to suicide that that's the case. Suicide is a, you know, a very complex, multi-layered event that um, is brought about by unconscious mental mechanisms that are probably universal that we don't understand. Um, so we can't really we can't understand it, and it certainly isn't due to one thing or one event that's led to something like this. The, a more a more um, a more thoughtful way of thinking about something is to do with responsibility, and responsibility can be shared, um, and it can be shared with the person also that's died. So there's this, a sort of more complex picture about responsibility, and and we all have some responsibility in what's happened. Um, and, and trying to think about that but this primitive place of blame can get very much into the systems mm. and you find it in the serious incident inquiry mm. everyone can get very confused about what it is they're actually looking at or looking for um, and you can get this in some reports and some inquiries this sense of we're looking for the thing the mm. person the event to blame for this death so responsibility can be constructive and blame can be destructive well, I think I think blame is a stage of mental processing, but it's not reality. Mm. And it can lead, I'm just thinking, Rachel, to other behaviours. If if there's a sense of blame being around, it can lead to kind of withdrawal. And um, one of the things that can happen is that um, after after the death, if if the services pull back because there is a sense of kind of, you know, blame and, and, and worry about what might happen. Um, they, can, they can forget about, you know, the, the, the family left behind, whoever it is, by that death. And then that can lead to further difficulties, because then who's, who's thinking about, you know, the, the, the family who's left? Um, and, and that can just add to the, the, the loss and uh, any kind of, breakdown in, in, in communication further on and so on and 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 some blame then um, so it's a complicated kind of string of events that can happen very easily I think. So uh, now that we've talked a little bit about the complexities of suicide I was just wondering if we could now talk about your personal stories. Um, uh, uh. It's difficult. I mean, I find it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about. It's difficult every time I talk about it, and I, I talk about it quite a lot. 
Um, I mean, I've been working on suicide for the last 12 years, quite a lot of my time, I think, to process my experience, which I had very early on. Um, I became a consultant. Uh, you know, I was very excited to become a consultant psychiatrist. My first job was in an inpatient unit. And I, at that time, I think I was full of quite a lot of um, maybe omnipotent, looking back on it, thoughts of what I could bring, um, how I could help people get better or uh, feel better. And in my second week as a consultant on the ward, my a patient that had been on the ward who left the ward died by suicide. And in the third week, I had another patient who'd left the ward died by suicide. And there was something that happened in the moment of me being told about the first death, where everything, like a house of cards, if you like, of what I thought um, I could bring sort of collapsed. It was actually uh, very, as well as this sort of sense of real loss, a profound loss of the patients, um, this sense of loss of what I was, of hope in some ways, or the hope of, of what I could bring in my future and coming up against something very powerful about the forces that I was going to be working with in psychiatry, very, um, and, and very much about the limit of what I could do. Um, I think looking back on it, I had, and, and, and probably still have to some degree post-traumatic stress from these experiences, I felt as if I was underwater, very ashamed and humiliated and toxic in some way, um, that somehow I'd done something that had made this happen. It took quite a while to recover from. What really helped was, was getting together with colleagues who'd had similar experiences and starting this group and talking through it. Um, gradually, it felt like I came up above the surface of the water again. Um, and in that, and in it, when it, it, when you're underneath the water, I'm, I remember thinking, what am I doing in this job? I can't bear this. I just can't bear this. If this happens to me again, I, I've got to leave. Uh, I'm wanting to run away from psychiatry. I'm very, very glad I didn't. But that impulse to try and get away from this experience was very strong. So was this in the first month that you were a consultant? Yeah, in the first month I had these two deaths. And actually a few months later we had another actually death on the ward, um, which was very difficult. And what was in one aspect of what was interesting in it was that the police treated it as a homicide initially, which I think what I've learned now is something that happens quite a lot with deaths by suicide initially. Um, so it was very difficult and it absolutely formed me as a clinician, these experiences. Mm. Um, and I'm still just talking about it now. I'm still processing it yeah. um, uh, and trying to understand suicide is my way of trying to come to terms in some way with the experience. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Rachel. Um, Roz, can we hear from you next, please? Yes. Um, so I've also been thinking about this, like Rachel, and uh, these experiences, they really stay with you. Um, and as, as you're saying, Rachel, continuing to process. Um, so I'm going back a little bit further. I'm, when I was a medical student, before I'd started any clinical work at all, um, one of the students in my year at college took his life. And I went through, at the time, I really kind of questioned why... 
why didn't I think something was wrong? Because I saw him quite soon uh, before he took his life. But it's interesting, Rachel, you were talking about um, the French philosophers. So th this, this student um, was actually in France at the time. And um, what I learned afterwards was that he'd been reading a lot of French philosophers and, you know, that, that whole question about what his life was about. Anyhow, he, he, he took his own life without, I think, um, explicit, any explicit kind of, you know, warning that something like, he might do something like that. And the other really early experience I had um, which again kind of has stuck with me since then, was I knew a doctor, a trainee, um, who I remember meeting fairly soon after I'd started training as, a, as an SHO in psychiatry. Anyhow, he took his life. So that, I think, medics taking their lives, that really, it's somehow, it, uh, it's just a reminder that we're all human and, you know, these questions about what our lives are about and where, what decisions we make and what we do and so on, um, we're, we're there like anyone else, as Rachel was describing, the different phases you may go through. But it has, it has this, uh, this kind of ripple effect as we're thinking about it. It, it, it stays with you throughout your practice as, as a psychiatrist, I think. And, you know, there, there are things you look back on in your life and they, they do stay with you. And that's, that's certainly, I would say, for me, um, one, one of those things. Um, As you were talking, Ros, I was, uh, I was thinking about a quote that, were, that was from a surgeon that was quoted by Henry Marsh in his book. Mm. Every surgeon uh, has inside them a cemetery where they, where they sometimes go to pray. Mm. And I was thinking about that, this sense that the patients that have died in this way do live with you um, in the background. Yeah. And as someone, as someone said, well, you know, actually, this is, I don't know, you know, worse or better for psychiatrists, because actually we get to know our patients and their families and their histories in a way that surgeons don't. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know the full history and everything that a person's been through. Mm. Yes, and often we know their families. We know that, you know, we... You know, you get to know you get to know people quite. You know, you get to quite intimately. In yeah, of course. Mm. Um, thank you so much for both sharing your stories. I know that must have been really difficult to open up about something so sensitive. I'd like to come to our last question, which is: What kind of support and training would you like to see more of? I noticed earlier when we were talking about starting off in psychiatry do you think there's the right amount of preparation and training or do you think there can never be the right amount to prepare you for this mm, that's a good question um i i do think it's really important it's a really important question it's a really important area to think about how how to support psychiatrists knowing that this is something that will happen it's that kind of at some point um, you will lose a patient to suicide or you may it may be somebody in your own life um, or an acquaintance or you know a, a family member it's there will be a situation you'll find yourself in where there is somebody um, who who you have had some some sort of contact with who takes their life and I think the proactive um, 
setting up support is really helpful in all for all sorts of reasons, not just this, but in general, you know, how do we cope with all the different things that we that we deal with in our professional lives? And and having good support in place is is just a kind of basic thing um, to cope with with change and 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 unexpected things and um, and other other difficult situations. So um, and and really kind of in a way uh, investing in that support because it's it's not something you can necessarily just kind of pick off the shelf it's it's about developing relationships with um with with your colleagues and and you know maintaining your relationships outside of work and that 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 there are people who are there for you and will continue to be there for you and you're you're inputting into and and growing those relationships they'll they'll help and there are specific offers like the psychiatry support service which is there um and then there are the individual uh, um, offers um, available in, in, in different trusts or in different parts of the country, like the group, Rachel, that you've been uh, been involved in, 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 in leading in London. And, you know, that sounds just so useful, but it's not there for everyone. And uh, you and I, we've been thinking about what more we might be able to do in this area, haven't we, in terms of how we work in the psychiatrist support service and the expertise there is a- around um, outside the service. And uh, what what further steps we could take in 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 this way? So, yes, yes, no, that's, that's right. We're thinking about what we could do more centrally. Um, actually, held in the Royal College about it, and I, I'm I'm pleased. This is something I'm, I feel very strongly about. Actually, I'm pleased that there has been some progress more recently. But actually, when I started twelve years ago, trying to talk and and think about this, there was I, I really don't think there was anything at all. Um, and considering suicide is actually a very large part of what we think about as psychiatrists, it's at the back of our mind nearly all our professional day. And we might use words such as risk to cover up that that's actually what we're talking about. But very often what risk means is risk of death by suicide. That's a very large part of the risk. So we're thinking about this all day, every day, yet we have very, very little um, training uh, in it, so you know, I, I think there's something about before, during, and after. That there's something about in medical training because it's not just psychiatrists that get um, really knocked sideways by this. GPs, you know, uh, many doctors do. Uh, nearly all doctors do in, in one form or another. I mean, GPs can be have a very difficult time um, with patients who die in their practice in this way. Uh, can feel very profoundly affected by it. So there's something about in medical training, can we actually talk, there's very little about loss in medical training or mourning or loss. And actually, as doctors, this is the bread and butter of what we do. We're dealing with loss, you know, and and helping people with that. But there's very little training about loss and mourning. There's something about the psychiatric curriculum. And luckily enough, I think we've just managed to get something into the psychiatric curriculum about suicide and homicide. You know, there's something about needing to think about this and naming it and uh, allowing us to start a dialogue and discourse about it. There's formalised support processes. I mean, I think there's some reason to think we should have some expectations of what trusts, of a sort of basic level of support that trusts provide for, uh, should provide for psychiatrists, but not just psychiatrists, but all clinicians and teams in the aftermath of a death of this nature. 
and the sort of period afterwards it's fantastic the psychiatrist support service and and the use of services like that um to help you know that it takes time to process it it's not just a one session um experience you know it can take many years to process something like this we did um uh again the survey that we did with the oxford center for suicide research we got people to say what it is that they wanted you know and a lot of the the feedback was that they actually had very very little support afterwards um and what they said is that they wanted a sort of what they'd like is a senior clinician um who, who could function as a sort of suicide lead um for the trust to give them confidential support and advice some support for the formal processes um after a death some reflective practice group a bit like the one that i was talking about where um clinicians could go to talk about to talk about deaths and and reflective practice groups really at this point um you know a very important part of functioning clinically altogether you know to have space to reflect on what you're doing and 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 process the difficult experiences that you might have personal debriefing and very much helping communicating and meeting with family and friends also was very uh, in the forefront of their mind and what i'm also pleased to say is that the royal college have been working on this and we've got a new working group for the effect of suicide and homicide on psychiatrists started last year and there's a new web, web page we've got a web page on the college website found under supporting you where there are resources to help you after uh, in this difficult period after this experience Mm. because you're right Rachel it's all those different ways of supporting the the individual clinicians who who've been affected because without that support they won't be able to support the family of or whoever it is um who was part of the life of the person who took their life and that's so important to be able to do and that may feel very different it is very different from your your normal clinical job seeing patients um because these aren't your patients these are the people who were uh connected with a, a deceased patient in some way um and that's that's very difficult work to do it's not easy um and you you need to be supported in order to do that because without it those those individuals are going to be just left with some really difficult feelings um and and that's so so hard for them yeah and and andros what i was thinking you were talking was was also as a psychiatrist you're dealing with people who are truly suicidal quite a lot of the time and to be able to approach truly suicidal people with an open heart it's very difficult to do that if you're worried about being persecuted or blamed yourself um and 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 if you're closed off it makes it much much harder to help mm. you have to feel in some way supported and that um you know that you're open enough to be mm. able to take in their distress and deal with the the sort of anxiety that um express suicidality brings Mm-hmm. Yes indeed. So trust may have a statement about positive risk taking, but what does that actually mean in practice? How do people really experience that that statement and how is it actually kind of borne out in reality to yeah. allow people to 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 have difficult conversations and to be able to really kind of think through where they are seeing somebody um and to feel kind of secure in their organization about doing that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I was thinking, um, sort of, the word, the, the phrase that was coming to my mind is zero tolerance for blame within systems, something like that. You know, there's something about this idea that that we really do need to address um, the feelings and the experience that psychiatrists may be blamed after a death. You're not to blame. Um, it's important to hold on to that. Mm, absolutely. Thank you to both of our speakers, Dr. Rosalind Ramsey and Dr. Rachel Gibbons, for opening up about their experiences and taking the time to speak with us about this critical issue. The Royal College of Psychiatrists has a helpline called the Psychiatrist Support Service. This provides free, high-quality peer support by telephone to psychiatrists of all grades who may be experiencing personal or work-related difficulties. If you would like to find support online, please go to our website, which is www.rcpsych.ac.uk. Find the members page and select Supporting You. This area has a range of information and services, including a booklet and video on patient suicide. Thank you for listening to the Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast with me, Ella Marchant.